0: Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast. We've got most of the Rethink Energy team here today talking about the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm the CEO, Peter White. This week, our editor, Bogdan Avramuta, is at a conference in New York. It's a bit too early for him there. Uh, but we do have solar analyst, Andries Fontanar. Hello there. And our EV and battery analyst, Connor Watts. Hello. All this discussion's built around the stories that we published last night, and it was a hell of an issue really pleased with the output it's not just news stream a lot of it is analysis if you want to look at this service and sample it just go to our website www.rethinkresearch.biz click on the energy button and um, a pop-up will ask if you'd like a free trial so yes uh, in this week's issue i want to highlight the lead piece on the fate of oil companies uh, and how they die not with a bang but with a lawsuit but We're not going to talk about that story today. That's just for people who are actually subscribing. Um, We might mention it later um, because we've got so much great stuff. Uh, We're going to look at our new section on supply chain pricing. And it's simple enough. It's a list of uh, materials, what they currently cost, what they cost last week, what we think they'll cost in the future. future. We're also going to look at um, some breakthroughs in solar efficiency. They're coming thick and fast right now, and it's getting fairly tough to predict which of the various solar technologies uh, are going to dominate the future. We'll also talk about um, why Chinese company battery firm Goshen is planning a battery plant in the middle of Morocco. Is it to supply Europe, perhaps? Finally, I'll ask a couple of questions on one or two of the short items in this week's issue. Um, But first, let's um, go over and look at the supply chain, what this uh, this is a weekly article that's always going to be carried in the publication as we focus more on the supply chains of solar, battery, and the pricing of hydrogen and potentially gas and oil as well. We just thought we'd put all the prices in one place and use it as a discussion point. You know, And when you see them all in one graph and in, in one table, the first thing that hits you is... Um, the falling price of um, solar modules, which is down to the same prices they were in,
1: is it 2020, Andrew? Yeah, Q3 2020. Um, so when I was writing this on Tuesday, I was saying, so pr- the week before this issue, I said that prices had fallen back down to Q1 2021 levels. In this week's issue, I said Q3 2020. Uh, as of the time of this podcast, two days later, uh, polysilicon has fallen at its lowest observed price to $11 per kilogram, right. uh, which is uh, and modules might be at a record low. So, you know, unprecedented. They've basically the whole price uh, spike caused by the shortages uh, of, of rapid demand expansion that lasted from basically all the way through 2021 and 2022. and. I suppose, the first quarter of 2023. It's all finally over, and I don't know what I'm going to write about now. Um,
0: <laughs> You're going to write about the falling price of solar. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the thing is, we've for, for 20 years previously, there's been two, two uh, main themes in the price of solar. One is it's way too expensive. It'll never get low enough. And two, the price has come down. Uh, until perhaps four years ago, it started to achieve parity with thermal um, produced electricity and now uh, is way below the price of thermal electricity in most countries and then it froze for a, a couple of years you know and that's really all that's happened is that uh, uh, supply chain constraints they they've probably uh, been a real challenge if you are in the if you're in the middle of China trying to sell your uh, solar panels cheaper, you've had this challenge there. To overcome and it looks like
1: finally they've overcome it yeah and i suppose now that you well it's kind of there's a bit of a chicken and the egg thing i was, I was about to say imagine how much worse the uh price spike would have been if you didn't have the energy crisis that made non-solar energy also more expensive but then True. Uh, but then i remembered that obviously the price spike was because of the shortage the shortage was because of the demand increase and a lot of the demand increase not all of it was because of the energy crisis so yeah, it's all uh, a bit circular there i remember back in like 2021 when i said hey i'm going to write an article about the rising price of polysilicon and your reaction to that was well it, it isn't rising modules aren't getting more expensive because forever up until that point the story was here's how modules are getting cheaper each year um now they have still been improving in terms of the technology in terms of really everything because the industry has expanded and become more experienced. And uh, it has often more helpful legislation. It has energy storage now, which did not before. Uh, so the, the energy, the cost increase was superficial in a sense. It was just price gouging really from supply chain elements that were in uh, short supply yeah, and, and yeah. now they're in massive oversupply. So basically the fundamentals of solar modules have continued to improve throughout that whole period in which they were more expensive. And now they get four years of uh qualitative improvements to reap and that's why they're going to end up not just um ending the price spike but going far more cheap than and not than a were moment to too with.
0: soon i mean if you look at our forecast i mean any observation anyone observing solar panels around the world realizes that the demand on them is going to double and double again and um, we only argue about the time scale we, we we are quite aggressive on the time scale, but that 's just in time. you know price decreases arrive just in time, just as subsidies arrive um, both sides of the atlantic um, you know and it's it 's likely that this stimulates the biggest wave of solar installations ever, which we 've already commented on in the past because we that 's what we believe
1: it 's quite funny that the price that we published in the issue, which was more or less correct when we published it, was $16 per kilogram of polysilicon. And now the lowest one is $11, two days right. later. So it really is something that's happening but we just can't this let
0: week. Solar panels entirely dominate the supply chain issues. Battery oh, yes. also. Uh, Connor, what, what, what happened in the um, materials market for battery?
2: It's been quite a slow week, unfortunately, in the battery raw materials market, which I guess, fortunately or unfortunately, really depends on who you are. The main change over the last couple of months has been the resurgence of Peruvian copper and Chinese industrial demand remaining somewhat low. So copper prices have been on the lower side of 8,000 USD as opposed to highs of 9 and 10 seen a couple of years ago. The long-term prospects for copper are still very, very high, but it's a, in a bit of a lull at the moment. Specifically in the battery side of things, lithium carbonate's uh, rise has slowed down because not too long ago it was at recent lows, I should say, not historic, obviously, but it was recent lows after a massive, massive fall, I think 65 to 70% fall from November to February. Since then, it remained level from about February until early May, hitting lows of 28,000 USD per tonne before recovering significantly to about 42,000 USD per tonne. But that recovery has slowed, and the price increases on in the last week have been lesser than that. of. The okay, so before.
0: on the table, we've got hydrogen in Germany, California, and the Netherlands. Uh, we've got a long-term forecast against those. Got spodumene concentrate, lithium carbonate, nickel sulfate, cobalt sulfate, manganese sulfate, copper, aluminium, iron, platinum, iridium. Uh, anyone wants to see this table? Go to the website, uh, ask for a trial. Um, hopefully, if you haven't had one before, that, that's going to be allowed. Palladium, solar modules, polysilicon cells and wafers, uh, and also a little checkpoint for, to the um, the gas and oil. Uh, standards of our time, just so that you've got them all on one page. Moving on, uh, we just want to um, take in uh, something that Andres has written. Uh, Andres, you, you kind of have talked about solar hovers on the verge of efficiency breakthroughs or efficiency revolution.
1: Can, can you sum that up for us? Yeah, so so often when I see some little press release about a kesterite research team reaching thirteen percent, or an organic research team, uh, organic semiconductor uh, that is, uh, reaching nineteen percent cell efficiency. I just sort of ignore it or put it in at the end of the issue somewhere. Um, but there were just so many this week; I had to cover it. Uh, so I, there was kesterite, there was organic, obviously, um, and there's the usual stuff about perovskites, which is the next big thing. Um, but the interesting thing really is is the contrast between my own... Can you
0: explain to rate. people what kesterite is?
1: Oh, it, it's you can think of it as perovskite, but another 10 years into the future, I suppose. It's just another alternative um, semiconductor. It's it's not really there yet, but it's interesting. It might show up later. And uh, it's just one of the things... It's just one of, of so many different technologies that are suddenly seeing breakthroughs that I had to sort of smash them all together in a single article. Otherwise, I didn't know what to do with them. Um, and, and, you know, my own coverage about perovskites uh, uh, two years ago said that, oh, well, uh, silicon has reached its, it's nearing its theoretical efficiency limit. So that's why people have to branch into uh, perovskites. And uh, what's actually happened is that they it, clearly we quite, hadn't quite ground to a halt. We ha- hadn't quite uh, plumbed the, depth of, the depths of what could be achieved with the existing materials. Uh, because there's there's constant increments on um, silicon, mainstream silicon efficiency, an extra 1%, and then it's another 1%. I really didn't expect that. And uh, I, well, I, reading
0: this article, I got the impression that everyone's, you know, they put their money on a particular horse. They've said, no, no, we're going to stay with SIGs or we're going to do something with perovskites and, or we're going to stay with Topcon or, or, or Heterojunction. And each one of them's getting something more out of their horse. But, but it, it must be uh, difficult for major organizations to suddenly go, well, hold on, we better cover that. We better get an R&D team. We better buy another company. We better find out uh, if we can do this other technology because the whole market might swing to it any se- second. So it looks to me like there's four, five, six directions the market can go in.
1: Yeah, certainly DAS Solar, which is the company I cover most in this article, sort of arbitrarily just because they were the ones that published a technology roadmap, um, they they say that they're sticking with TopCon instead of heterojunction. Now, generally, I say that heterojunction is the more advanced and the slightly more efficient version compared to TopCon, which has the advantage of, um, you know, TopCon's more convenient because you can adapt uh, PERC production lines, which you can't as easily with heterojunction. So it's quite surprising to see them say, well, no, we're going to take Topcon and make it a truly uh, leading product. Um, now, this then, is a roadmap that
0: goes all the way up to the second half of 2025, and as high as
1: 30% efficiency. Yeah, or even beyond. And, 35% and it off, efficiency, yeah. It starts off familiar with Topcon and uh, TBC, which is uh, Tunneling Oxide Passivated Back Contact. So that's all quite familiar, but then it says, SCPC, and I had to look up what these are, which is selective carrier contact passivation. Then it, yeah, probably one or two of our listeners will know exactly what all this means. And then there's T6, which is a silicon-silicon tandem covering the infrared band gap. Well, that's the impression I got. Uh, and then they have something called SFOS, which is, I had a really long sentence describing what SFOS is supposed to be somewhere in this article, and it's all <laughs> Oh, it's it's a, it, is a novel photoelectric conversion thin film material with singlet fission characteristics superimposed on the surface of the cell to form an exciton multiplication generation process. Well, I I definitely really know exactly what all of that means for sure. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, uh, so it's interesting that there's so many different tandems, uh, even silicon silicon tandems. I mean, I have heard about those before. But...
0: Do we do we know whether or not these thirty and thirty five percent efficiency technologies will achieve those numbers uh, when they get to module size, or is there still a 2 or 3% margin for error?
1: Well, I believe um, one of the big issues with uh, perovskite tandem promises, one is degradation, and one is uh, what's it called, current matching between the silicon part of the tandem and the perovskite part, especially if they degrade at different rates during the uh, module's lifespan. Now, that probably doesn't apply as much if you're doing a silicon-silicon tandem, probably you know certainly degradation is not a problem and probably the current matching isn't a problem either because there's not a differential on the degradation so i would say uh, i don't know I, i'm not so going to D- say if that so, definitely... uh,
0: it's banking on the side of a technology it fully understands and it already knows all the issues with but others may bank on more modern promising technologies which may have more hurdles to overcome so i mean the arrival point of of each of these technologies Uh, into the marketplace and and for a period of dominance is difficult to to pinpoint.
1: Yeah, it's quite revolutionary really, which is kind of the theme of this article. And I think going back to what you were saying about it's hard for these companies to cover all of these different angles because every angle requires expenditure on a research and development team. Well, I think ultimately the reason why this breakthrough is happening now is quite crude. It's simply that the solar industry is far bigger. That includes the biggest companies with the biggest R&D budgets. And you look at... uh, some of these breakthrough, I, I think maybe two of three, or even three of three, of some of the niche uh, uh, research results that I mentioned are Chinese teams. And why is that? Well, it's simply because that's where the industry is. Um, it was it, Japanese. This is it something 10 years that,
0: ago? that the venture capital community does well to understand. It's it's very hard to throw a hundred million dollars or two hundred million dollars at a new technology, which is unproven and is pre revenue. It's much easier to take something that's got a 5 billion dollar revenue stream and use some of its margin to drive r&d uh, and and so uh, if you've got if you're not pre revenue on a new product if you're already existing revenue you can just plow a percentage of its uh, of its um, income into r&d um and this is why revolutions don't often happen they don't happen because too much money has got to be thrown at something Without revenue, and that the VC community is reluctant to do that, and, and that's just a general rule of of, of all change in technology. That, that if you uh, if you're looking for the change, look at the the where the large revenues are coming from right now, which is odd because it's those companies who try and stay the same all the time, but but they're trying to milk something for as long as it can be. Funny enough, we did a, a you did another piece on next wave the uh, wafer deposition approach to polysilicon, i.e. don't create polysilicon, you know, create a wafer. Um, And and I've talked to them myself a while while ago, and they've been the coming technology for a long time, but God, it's taken forever for that technology to uh, make itself appropriate to solar. But for anyone who's got a subscription, I recommend that article as well as something worth looking at. Its time is probably almost
1: here. Yeah, and like the guy I spoke to said, uh, who I think was the CEO. Yes, it would be would have been, wouldn't it? He, uh, it's a week ago now. <laughs> yes, the time has come because of the IRA and equivalent uh, European Union efforts. So now they have um, now they're not directly competing with the Chinese. But even if they were, if they they would get picked up eventually because uh, there are outright technological advantages to just depositing a wafer if you can instead of um, soaring turning it into an ingot with this they, they skip both the Siemens process and the Chikrowski process yeah. which are both over 1000 degrees and then once they you know and they're just depositing it into a wafer directly they're not sawing it up and when you saw it up you're losing some of the silicon material it, it, it's quite literally being discarded well I, I enjoyed that article a lot lots of technical detail 1900 words so uh, yeah read it it's, I can't do it justice over the podcast I think No,
0: no, probably. it's it's too much too yeah. so Andreas, we're going to pop over to you now um, Goshen Goshen's a company in China we've been keeping an eye on um, it's um, it seems to have a huge amount a huge deal brewing in Morocco um, it's a memorandum of understanding at the moment what why why is is that and what's likely to be built there
2: yeah, so, Morocco has been looking at investing in an EV battery factories since last July. The Moroccan government has been in talks with companies since then, but this is the first um, agreement that has materialized out of that. And so, Goshen is a Chinese kind of specialist in LFP and soon to be LMFP batteries. And they have signed a memorandum of understanding with the Moroccan government to look into investing in an EV battery factory with up to 6.3 billion USD. It'll probably start at maybe a quarter of that and then ramp up over time. So is the
0: investment coming from Morocco or is it coming from China?
2: It's coming primarily from China, but I imagine there will be some state subsidies there. We were talking about why Morocco specifically. It seems a bit weird in that Chinese companies aren't banned from investing in Europe like they effectively are when it comes to looking at investing in the USA because of the Inflation Reduction Act. So there's no downside to putting the factory in Spain. So why Morocco? It's out of the single market. I've found since then that Morocco is mineralogically incredibly rich. It has 75% of the world's phosphate ore. 75%? That's
0: astonishing.
2: It's ludicrous. Yeah. And they're only the second largest producer after China. So they're set to become the largest producer very quickly. No, they're still a ways behind China. I think they produce about half as much phosphate ore as China. But most of their phosphate is exported and used within the fertiliser market. And it feeds a vast majority of Africa.
0: It's it's funny, if you look at a a map of, of North Africa and the Middle East. You know, we see all our oil coming from Saudi Arabia uh, and that segment. And then suddenly, Egypt, Morocco, Tunisia, Mauritania, Western Sahara are all in this solar zone where the energy is cheap and the um, the reach to Europe is short. They all have a claim. I mean, if Libya wasn't uh, permanently disrupted, Libya would be in that too. And of course, Algeria does. Um, but it depends how uh, it is like a beauty contest, you know wh- well, where do I get the best terms? Where is the most stable economy? where's the best education? Um, where can people work in the factories um that, that you know where the summer temperatures are not too high, et cetera so th- this whole this is the time for being in North Africa
2: absolutely, and with regards to that kind of beauty contest aspect that you say. Morocco wins, more or less outright because of its mineralogical reserves. I've had a short conversation with a contact on LinkedIn, and Morocco also has reserves of iron and manganese. So the only material that Morocco realistically needs to import for LFP or lmfp battery batteries is lithium and graphite so that's just going to come into southern spain
0: um and and uh, everything that is output whether or not this materials you need or whether it's even electricity is all going to come through um, from morocco into southern spain and distributed into europe from there it's in an incredible position and also it sits between um uh, europe and the western sahara and Mauritania which are two other com- countries which uh, have similar plans.
2: I'm surprised it hasn't been explored as of yet, but I imagine, well, the Moroccan government has been looking for technology partners, effectively, since last July. I think they recognise that they're in a pretty good position and can kind of have their pick yeah. to a degree.
0: Yeah, well, much like Egypt, Egypt being, you know, ha- having the canal right there and um, and being really very close to um, the bottom of uh, of Greece.
2: Well, what's happening in South Sudan? I don't know if that's entirely uh, the same.
0: Well, I, I hope there's a line drawn between Egypt and Sudan.
2: There is. Well, it's um, if I remember correctly, there's been some uh, political instability that's uh, potentially threatening, or it's changing the terms of a dam in South Sudan. That's Ethiopia,
1: which... but it's a similar Ethiopia, thing. Ethiopia.
2: Anyway. Apologies, <clears throat> my African. Uh,
0: African geography, geography yeah, Sudan yeah, sits <laughs> below <laughs> Egypt, and then Ethiopia to the uh, south east of. of
2: yeah, there was one further
1: down. Runs through Sudan,
2: anyway. I've regardless.
0: All right. So the conclusion of that is we don't yet know if Goshen will go ahead and build this, but it's got an MOU. Uh, if it does, it, it, you can be sure that it's um, it's going to build LFP and LMFP, uh, and it will offer that into Europe on whatever terms, and it will negotiate those terms now before it spends a penny on building a factory. So it looks like this is going to be a springboard into Europe, uh, yet another springboard into Europe. Um, we'll keep keep an eye on that um, and uh, and see if it actually goes ahead. Meanwhile, um, in the world of renewables this week, oh no, there's another, um, another perovskite acquisition Oh um, yes, really yet fu- another
1: Futura Sun. It's very ironic that this we, we get three weeks in a row of perovsc, big perovskite investments, uh, and it's the same three weeks in a row that uh, polysilicon halves in price, almost back to its low level. Not much above its <laughs> cost of production. Yeah, but perovskite is almost the alternative.
0: Yeah, it could be much cheaper than uh, than the supply chain for.
1: Yeah, perovskites don't need uh, silicon to be inconvenienced by supply chain issues. Yeah, It would just be nice. <laughs> um, yeah, so Futura Sun has acquired ticks. and that is similar to First Solar acquiring Evlar. It's and it's in the same league as QCELL's uh, investing 100 million in a production line, which is, right. those are the three, event, big, three big events of the past three weeks.
0: It's certainly it's a, a trend, fix. which is, it's good that you're doing a forecast on Provsky uh, as your next forecast, isn't it? Yeah. And Just below that one, Philippines holding an auction uh, later this month, Eleven point
1: six gigawatts. I mean, the last auction was about a tenth that size. Yeah, um, I suppose it would be worth uh, looking into that in more detail. Maybe in the next uh, quarterly solar capacity update, I could add the Philippines in. I mean, it's, it's obviously
0: got its act together in terms of its um, uh, uh, its shift into renewables, and it's it's trying it's trying its hardest, and it's. I mean, it, that's that's a serious amount of capacity for a country that. I don't know what it's off the top of my head what it uses in electricity, but that's going to be a serious chunk of it.
1: To put it politely, it has—I'm sure—it has a huge amount of room for growth in electricity consumption and production. Yeah. And, and across Southeast Asia, you're looking at a kind of on, on-off switch for renewable energy. And we saw Vietnam put, turn turn it on and then hurriedly turn it off again before it overloaded <laughs> the whole grid. We saw yeah. we saw Burma, so or, or, you're supposed to call it Myanmar now. We saw Myanmar. Launch a, a bunch of um, renewable energy tenders, and they're a bit—they weren't very well organized because it was their first time doing it. Uh, and then they started having sort of civil conflicts and assassinations and things blowing up. So I think that interfered with it quite badly. Um, no, no, well, Thailand
0: energy.
1: Thailand actually had fa- has five. I think Thailand has about five gigawatts of solar that it built maybe ten years ago, in a sort of mini Vietnam where it switched it on and off again in terms of feeding tariffs. Um, right. So yeah, maybe it looks like the Philippines is the, the new Canada. I think
0: these countries have to understand that they have to find their own way of doing things. You can't just copy what the West has done and think it's going to work for you. Um, feeding tariffs have to be set very carefully um, to, to make, to, to get a sustained situation like somewhere like Japan or the way Italy did, you, you know, you have to... You have to um, think about the pricing of your feeding tariff very carefully, but I was drawn to this other article on um, a, a, a something we come across all the time the idea of having solar power in space um, <laughs> and sending it down to a terrestrial receiver um, and that's that 's just been done by uh, Caltech researchers i don 't know who wrote this, but they 've actually been power from space. Not just, um, they beamed it to other satellites and they have beamed it down to Earth using a microwave array. So that's interesting that experiments continue in that direction. Um, mm. We may one day all be, um, uh, get our electricity from outside the atmosphere. Um, the way
1: I look at it, there's, there's two advantages of putting it in, in space and beaming it down. One advantage is that it's something like 10 or 12 times the sunny in, in, in space so you're getting a lot more power per square meter of solar panel i don't really find that too appealing because even though it's a 12 times multiplier it's still just a it's a it's not a difference of category it's just a difference of degree um so i don't think that really justifies bothering to launch it into your orbit the the categorical difference between space-based solar and ground mounted is that you beam it down well you can choose which direction you beam it in so then probably you don't even have to build long you don't have to build transmission lines anymore really you just beam it to or you you have like medium-sized clusters of transmission and you just beam it there and maybe you when one area has lower demand and another has higher demand you don't need a huge transmission line to equalize it you just um change what direction you're beaming the power
0: yeah difference in, in your thinking is you think in terms of demand i think in terms of price People are going to, you know, who's going to bid the most for my energy today? Oh, I'll beam it there. Yeah. It's going to be about profit, not about, not about uh, efficiency. Some sort of top-down uh, planning <laughs> thing. Yeah. Okay, that's probably enough for today. I mean, that's a sample of what has probably been the best issue we've written uh, this year. You should be subscribing to Rethink Energy. Go to rethinkresearch.biz, click on the Energy button. Uh, you should be able to see the first six lines of every story. If you need this to do your job, you should be subscribing. It's not massively expensive. While you're there, click on the forecast and data button and take a look at the, um, the long-term forecasts that we've put together. Um, we've already put out three or four or five this year. We're, um, we're only halfway through the year. And uh, we'll see you again with another podcast next week. Thank you very much.